Good morning, church family. What a beautiful morning to be alive. I was feeling that song. Uh, my name is Ashley Polly, and I have the pleasure of serving you all on the ministry council. And I was also on the search team that brought Pastor Tim here. And I've heard his word, and it is a powerful word this morning. I'm so glad you're here to hear it. Our scripture reading today is from Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm the new guy. Thank you. It's been uh, just, uh, just about six weeks since um, I left my ministry at Azusa Pacific University um, with the campus pastors and the office of chapel there and uh, joined you all here after I've been there for nine years. And uh, the last six weeks have been a little bit of a blur. Um, I likened it to drinking water from a, a fire hydrant as I've been just trying to meet with as many people as possible, get to know as many people as possible, learn about this wonderful church's 120-year history. Um, and I, I just want to thank you for your gracious response to me. Th um, I apologize if I've introduced myself to you multiple times like we've never met before. Um, and honestly, there is no place else I'd rather be serving in ministry right now than right here with you at this time in history. And uh, this is my first opportunity to share God's Word with you today, and I, I want you to know that I don't take that lightly. I don't view it as a right because it's in a job description somewhere. I view it as a gift that I've been offered, and I hope that I steward that gift well this morning. We live in a world of irreconcilable differences between nations, between groups of people, between neighborhoods, between individuals. We see huge chasms that separate large groups of people wherever we look. We see it politically in the wake of one of the most divisive presidential elections in modern history. We see it socially as large uh, groups of people are separated from each other in our schools, in our neighborhoods. We see it between nations, but we also experience these fractures between people in a deeply personal way as well. We experience it in separations between neighbors and friends between spouses and children. Probably all of us understand the pain of a broken relationship or a family member that's estranged that we haven't spoken to. 
And so on a large scale, a macro scale, and also on a deeply personal level, all of us know that our world is fractured and divided. And Christians have always observed from the very beginning that we can't talk about the fractures between people, groups of people, individuals, nations, that we can't talk about that without also talking about the fracture that exists between the human race and God who created the human race. We can't talk about one without also talking about the other. Now, we're in a sermon series through Romans chapters, eight, uh, chapters 5 through 8 called Made New. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 of the 27 books that are found in the New Testament part of the Bible. And Paul wrote this letter to the Christians living in the ancient city of Rome. And in the first three chapters of the book of Romans... Paul tells us that this fracture that exists between the human race and God is universal. That it's true of rich people and poor people, of religious people, of non-religious people, of people who are good by society's standards, and people who are not good by society's standards. That everyone in the human race is part of this fracture between the human race and God. In fact, Paul concludes in the third chapter of Romans, the 23rd verse, when he says, all have sinned everyone. And Romans chapters 5 through 8 tell us about how God lifts us up from this condition and begins changing us and making us new as part of His new creation. And so today we're going to look in depth at Romans 5 verses 6 through 11, which Ashley read. And this passage naturally divides into three movements. The first movement is what God has done in verses 6 through 8. Then about what happens to us because of what God has done in verses 9 and 10. And then finally, what our response can be because of what God has done in and through us. So let's start by thinking about what God has done for us in the midst of this fracture. In this section, Paul uses several words to try to describe the magnitude and the severity of this fracture between the human race and God. And each of these words he uses evokes a different image, a different picture of that fracture between us and God. The, the, one of the words he uses in verse 6 is the word powerless. Powerless. This word implies helplessness, that we're incapable of doing anything to mend this fracture between ourselves and God. We lack the capacity to solve the human predicament. No matter how powerful and influential we might be in other areas of life, when it comes to our relationship with God and this fracture that exists, we're helpless. We're incapable. We're powerless. He also uses the word ungodly in verse 6. And we tend to, to reserve this term ungodly to describe people who seem really bad to us. 
But the truth is, the word ungodly simply means people who live without reference to God. We've all done that. Whether it's living certain parts of our life without taking God into account, or whether it's partitioning off certain aspects of our lives as if God had nothing to say about that particular part of our lives. It's true of all of us. In verse 8, we find the word sinners. And again, we can tend to reserve this for people who seem particularly bad to us, but in the Bible, it simply describes people whose lives have fallen short of what God created them to be and to do. It's not talking so much about specific actions we have done as much as it's the condition that we find ourselves in in this fracture between ourselves and God. And then finally, in verse 10, we find the word enemies. That's quite an image, isn't it? That somehow the human race is at war with God, hostile to God. That, that The picture here is that somehow there's this obstacle that exists between the human race and God that separates us from God, and this obstacle, until it's addressed, until it's removed, creates hostility. These four words, powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, paint a grim picture of the human condition. In fact, you might be thinking, well, that's probably the last time we hear our new associate pastor preach, bringing everybody down this grim picture. But let's dwell there for a minute. Because the truth is, is that it's far easier for us to see these things in other people than it is for us to see them in our own hearts and in our own lives. In fact, let me take that another step. It's far easier for us to see these things into people who are different than us than it is for us to see them in people who are like us. It's far easier for church-going people to see these things in non-church-going people. And it's far easier for non-church-going people to see these things in church-going people. But what Paul is saying here and what he's built up to in the book, in his letter to the Romans, is that this is true of everyone. Me, you, all. And in a strange sort of way, this is like a great equalizer. That at least in this area of life, we all stand on the same level. None has advantage or disadvantage over the other. And of course, if that's where we left this picture um, and this conversation, it would be a grim picture indeed. But these four words merely serve as the backdrop for what Paul really wants to say. Because against this backdrop of these four words, Paul wants to show us and tell us what God has done. What has God done? And that's really the focus of verse 8. So let me read verse 8 again. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in this grim, helpless condition, at just the right time, God sent His Son to demonstrate His love. When we were at our worst, God was at His best. 
You see, in the Bible, it doesn't picture God as this overbearing father who's pushing and prodding his son towards the cross because someone has to go there. Instead, it pictures God the Father and God the Son in community together collaborating in this process to demonstrate the love of God. Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was an active, loving participant to demonstrate God's love on the cross. The death of Jesus reveals the love of God. The cross is a window into the heart of God. The cross is like a portal into a whole different world where there exists this kind of love that has no parallel or equivalent in the world that we live in. Already, Paul has contrasted this kind of love in verse 9. He says, we might occasionally see someone die for a noble cause or for a good person, but for God to send His Son for us when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, sinful, when we were at war with Him, that's an entirely different kind of love. There's no analogy. There's no human equivalent for us to look at. There's nowhere but the cross to see this kind of love. We read here that Christ died for us. He died on our behalf. He died in our place. Jesus died to take the full weight of all human sin upon His shoulders, to demonstrate the love of God in the most outrageous, most audacious way imaginable. What has God done? Paul answers that question by saying God has demonstrated His love through the cross. That's what God has done. He's demonstrated His love through the cross. And friends, this is one reason Jesus commanded His church, commanded us to celebrate communion regularly, to constantly be reminded of this amazing love, that every time we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we are reminded of the unselfish, self-giving love of God expressed in the cross. By eating and drinking, we open our hearts once again to this kind of love, to continue its work of transforming us, of changing us, of nourishing us, and making us new. Because without a constant reminder, we might be tempted to forget. But now let's consider what happens to us because of what God has done. And there are lots of things that we could say about verses 9 and 10, but I want to just focus on a couple of words, the word justified, the word saved, and the word reconcile. Let's just zero in on those words. Let's begin with justified in verse 9. This is actually the tenth time Paul has used the word justified in this letter to the Romans. So, the people reading this originally had already seen it several times. And as Pastor Greg talked about two weeks ago, the word justified, it means to make things new or to make things right. In fact, it was often used as a legal term for when someone was accused of a crime and brought into a court of law. If they were acquitted, if they were found innocent of the crime that they were accused of, the word they would use is that they were justified. The Protestant reformers in Europe really emphasized this part of being justified. 
In fact, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. And in many ways, those reformers rediscovered this idea of what it means to be justified. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, calls being justified like a transfusion of righteousness. I love that image. But one of my favorite descriptions is from one of the reformers in England, Hugh Latimer. He puts it this way. Hugh Latimer says, when we believe in Jesus, it is like we had no sins. He takes our sins from us and gives us His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His fulfilling of the law, so that we will be like Him as if we had done no sin at all justified by His blood. Here's an analogy. You might picture it this way. Um, If you use a computer word processing program on your computer or on your tablet or on your laptop, your word processing program probably has a feature that you can use to justify the margin of your document. Now, if you use that function, the justify function takes your right margin of your document, which is uneven, and it makes it even, it makes it flush, it makes it straight. So everything lines up together. That's a pretty good picture of what happens when we're justified. Our lives are uneven. They fall short. And so through the cross, God makes our lives straight. So everything lines up as it should. Through the cross, we're justified. Paul also says that through the cross, we will be saved from the wrath to come. Now, this is the second time Paul's used the word save in the book of Romans. He used it in chapter 1. And this particular verb means to be delivered from danger, to be rescued from peril. And we often use the word saved and justified as if they mean the same thing. But for Paul, they don't. For Paul, justified is something that happens the moment of our conversion when we first trust in Jesus. We will never be more justified than we are at that moment. But save refers to the whole process. It's an all-encompassing word of God from beginning to end making us complete in Christ. It includes being justified, but it also includes being brought into the church and our ongoing progress in being transformed into holiness and our ultimate resurrection and perfection. All that is what Paul means by the word saved. Let me give you an analogy. As you get to know me, you'll discover that I'm a rock climbing enthusiast. I love the sport. I love watching other people climb. Um, I love to climb. I climb at least once a week uh, indoors and occasionally outdoors. Three of my four sons climb, and I've been a member of an indoor climbing gym for about a decade now. And a few of my climbing friends from the gym had an experience back in October that I think illustrates what Paul means and how he's using the word saved here. Now, my friends gave me permission to share their story, and they even gave me permission to share their names, but I'm going to change their names because some of the things they did were not so wise in this story. So let's just call them Nick and Kathy and leave it at that. 
Nick and Kathy went climbing at Lembert Dome, which is in Tuolumne Meadows, the high country of Yosemite National Park. And they decided to climb a four-pitch, 400-foot route that Nick had climbed once before. Um, I think we have a picture of that, uh, that particular rock. You can put it up on the screen. And on the picture, you'll see, once it's up there, that it's a long route, 400 feet, that someone named Crying Time Again. So if you see all the way to your left, the letter A, that's the route that they were climbing. Someone named it Crying Time Again. Now, Kathy didn't have much outdoor climbing experience, especially multi-pitch climbing where you're above the ground more than 100 feet. But Nick had climbed this climb before. In fact, he had led this climb, and so they figured that they would be fine. Now, they got a late start to the crag, which was probably one of their first mistakes. But Nick was confident that based on his past experience, that they would be able to finish it before dark. What they didn't count on was the fact that Kathy climbed slower than Nick did. And by the time they reached the last pitch, the last hundred feet before the top, it was totally dark. Now, add to that that they had packed flashlights but forgot them in the car. <laughs> so Nick finished the route. He topped out at the top, but Kathy was stuck hundred feet below. She was cold, she was tired, and she was unable to move forward. Now, there's no cell reception at the top of Lembert Dome. And Nick realized he's helpless to do anything to help Kathy. And he realized he's going to have to leave her behind to get help. And so Kathy went off belay from Nick's rope, and she used a locking carabiner to, to um, anchor into a bolt that someone had drilled into the rock. And Nick went down the trail a couple miles, the uh, um, down-climb trail, in order to find help. I think we have a picture of where, um, where she was. So here's a picture of the last um, pitch of this particular climb, and if you look at the picture, there we go. If you see the person with the white helmet, you can barely see him. That's where Kathy was. That's not Nick and Kathy because it was dark when they were there. But you can get a sense of how high up Kathy was. She was in danger for sure. Unable to go up. Unable to go down. 300 feet from the ground, 100 feet from the top. And now her climbing partner had left her there to go get help. Kathy later told me that she prayed and she sang songs from her favorite musical to stay warm and to stay hopeful. Meanwhile, Nick, using his um, flashlight on his um, iPhone, made it down Lembert Dome to the parking lot and found a National Park Ranger and told him of the situation. And the park ranger said, wait here, don't move, I'm going to go get help. And so Nick waited in the parking lot while Kathy, um, 300 feet up, was anchored and waiting. And for two and a half hours, they waited for help to come. Finally, the park rangers arrived, and they hiked up the trail with Nick. And they lowered a rope down to Kathy that had a, um, a headlamp tied onto it. It's like a flashlight that straps on your head. And so she turned on the headlamp, and now she could see at least... 
She went back on belay to Nick's rope, and then she tied on to the second rope that the rangers had lowered to her. And then using the headlamp to see, she began to climb the last hundred feet while the rangers pulled on their rope in order to make the climb easier for her. And finally, at 11.30 at night, Kathy topped out, cold, tired, but safe. Now, if we spoke New Testament Greek, there's only one word that would accurately describe what happened to Kathy, and it's the same word Paul uses here in Romans 5. She was saved. She was delivered from danger. She was rescued from peril. But here's my question. At what point was Kathy saved? I mean, we could say that her salvation was assured as soon as the park rangers were on the way. Or, or we might say that she was saved as soon as she tied on to the second rope. She wasn't going anywhere. They could pull her up. Or we could say that she was saved while she was climbing and they were pulling. Or she was saved when she topped out. Or she was saved when she made it back to the car. Or maybe she was saved when she finally got home and laid down in her own bed. Her salvation from danger included all of that. The entire process. And that's how Paul uses the word save here in Romans 5. We're justified. We're promised that we'll be saved. And now the third word that he uses here is the word reconciled. Now, Paul has already used the word justified ten times now in Romans. He's already used the word saved twice. But this is the first time in his letter to the Romans he uses the word reconcile. It's almost as if he's been building up to this, that he's been building one layer upon another to get to this moment, to this point. And if justified is a legal term, and if saved means delivered or rescued from danger, the word reconcile means to be restored into friendship. Friendship among individuals, groups of people, even nations can be reconciled. And the image here is that friendship had somehow been destroyed. Some obstacle created hostility, and that once that obstacle is removed, friendship can be resumed. Friends, our seemingly irreconcilable differences with God, our powerlessness and our ungodliness, our sinfulness and our enmity with God actually turn out to be reconcilable differences through the cross. Through the cross, we are restored to friendship with God. What happens to us we become friends of God. We become friends of God. Do you know how rare that phrase is used throughout the Bible? And yet it's used of every follower of Jesus. We become friends of God. And that leads us to the last movement in our text, which is how this can affect our lives. And let me just read verse 11 once again. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We boast in God. The cross breaks through every delusion that we had anything to offer to this relationship or that we contributed to it in any way. While we were helpless and sinful, Christ died for us. 
And so any confidence, any boasting we might do must be outside of ourselves, not from within. Any credit for this relationship is deflected from ourselves and on to God. And that's important because when that's working right in our lives, it creates humility. But then Paul moves to the kill, so to speak, when he affirms that because of what God has done, we have now received reconciliation. Notice the change from verse 10 to verse 11. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God. Verse 11, we have now received reconciliation. It's a subtle shift, but it's an important one. Because we were not active participants in being reconciled to God. God did everything there. God did all the heavy lifting. But now that we have received reconciliation, friends, we are active participants in that. In fact, Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5 develops this idea even further than he does here in Romans. He says that because we're reconciled to God through the cross, we are now God's ministers of reconciliation in the world around us. We invite people to be reconciled to God as we were, but we also become agents of reconciliation in our relationships, between groups of people, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, wherever we are. We become a force of reconciliation. And just as we can't talk about the fractures between people without also talking about the fracture between the human race and God. Friends, we cannot talk about being reconciled to God without also talking about reconciliation with others. You can't talk about one without the other. They go hand in hand. I believe here in verse 11, Paul is planting a seed that will grow throughout his letter to the Romans that he will harvest towards the end of Romans. We know that there's lots of evidence New Testament scholars tell us that the church in Rome at this time was deeply divided, and it was divided into two groups. It was divided into Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Roman Christians, and this was not a religious division. They both followed Jesus, the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians. They both worshiped God. It was primarily an ethnic, cultural, and racial division. In fact, many historians say that, that this division between Jewish people and non-Jewish people was the most prominent and significant ethnic division in the ancient world at this time. And that division was being mirrored by the church in Rome. Jewish Christians and Roman Christians were judging each other, avoiding each other, slandering each other, misunderstanding each other. And it was such a big problem that Paul is going to address it head-on in this letter in chapter 9, in chapter 10, in chapter 11, in chapter 14, again in chapter 15. Because Paul wants to help these two groups that are divided yet still trying to follow Jesus find pathways to reconciliation with one another. But before he even goes there, here in chapter 5, he plants this seed 
to show us that being reconciled to God means being reconciled to one another. We can't talk about one without the other. If I had to summarize these verses, it would go something like this. Through the cross, God has demonstrated His love so we can live as reconcilers. He has demonstrated His love through the cross so you and I can live as reconcilers in our world. Let me suggest just a couple practical ways we might apply this, and then I'll I'll finish up. First, if you're new to this idea of being reconciled to God, I want to invite you to consider what that might mean for you at this time. In the words of Paul in in 2 Corinthians 5, I urge you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Lake Avenue Church is a wonderful place for you to take this step and to learn about what taking this step can mean for you. For 120 years, countless men and women have been reconciled to God through the ministry of this church. In fact, just next month, we'll be starting a nine-week alpha group that is a great place to go if this is all new to you and you have more questions than anything to go and to talk about your questions and ask your questions and to have those questions addressed. If you're already a follower of Jesus, if you're already a Christian, this passage, I believe, invites us to look soberly and honestly at our own spiritual condition. Yes, if you're a Christian, you've been justified. Your salvation has been promised. You've been reconciled to God. But friends, that's just the beginning of the journey. It's not the end of the journey. We still struggle with sin in our lives, as we'll see in this series in chapter 6 of Romans and in chapter 7 of Romans. This season of Lent is a great time leading up to Easter to, with repentant hearts, to invite God to search our hearts and to show us those areas that are so easy to see in other people, but we don't see in ourselves that still need the touch of God. What's next in your growth? Where is God calling you deeper? Finally, consider what it might mean for us to live as reconcilers. If you've trusted in Jesus, He has given you a gift, reconciliation. What are you going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? And this is not to say that reconciliation is easy or that every attempt at reconciliation works. It's not to say that um, reconciliation isn't hard work, that people have to want to be reconciled. Some reconciliation will have to wait until heaven to be complete. But friends, it is not an overstatement to say that the credibility of our message about Jesus rests at least in part on our ability to be reconcilers in the world. That if we can't be reconcilers in our communities and in our lives, even in our own imperfect and faltering ways that sometimes fall flat, when we proclaim the message of reconciliation with God, people don't hear it. Because our actions are speaking so much louder than our words. Through the cross, God has demonstrated His love for us 
so we can live as reconcilers in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the ability to come together and to worship you in this time and in this place. And we thank you for your word that speaks. We thank you for your voice. And Lord, as we sing this last song, may it be a a declaration of our faith. May it be an invitation for you to do that deep work within us of making us reconcilers. In Christ's name, amen.